0: Good evening, everybody. Uh, I'm sorry that we're not live tonight, but we are recording this uh, Wednesday afternoon, so those of you who listen to it at 7 o'clock on Wednesday can still listen to it, and the majority of you who listen to this via recording can get the recording a little bit earlier, although this is only an audio recording, and you don't get to see my face. Oh, so sad. Uh, So this week, uh, this uh, Shabbat, is uh, is uh, the Shabbat after Tisha B'Av. Uh, Ashkenazim call it Shabbat Nachamo. Uh, it is also coincidentally Tu B'Av. We have some nice classes on Tu B'Av. Um, this week though we're going to discuss the perashah Va'Etchanan, which we read. And we're going to discuss Va'Etchanan specifically relating to tefillah and the idea of how to have tefillah work. Uh, and going beyond Tifilat to the idea of Nefilat Apayim. So we begin this week's Perasha with Va'et Hanan el Hashem ba'it Moshe is recounting to B'nei Israel that he pleaded with Hashem to let him enter the land. It says, Va'ir Hanan implored Hashem at that time. The rabbis tell us that the numerical value, the gematria, of the word hanan is five fifteen, and Sarim is a, a hint to the five hundred and fifteen different prayers of supplication that Moshe Rabbeinu prayed. Rashi adds that the word va'edhanan is one of ten Hebrew words for tefillah, for praying. Amazingly, the generic value of the Hebrew word tefillah is also five hundred fifteen so we i guess we get tefillah we're going to see how did moshe pray how does moshe pray different times and how does moshe get his prayers answered and the verse tells us in this case though hashem tells him you have enough stop praying you have enough moshe don't keep speaking to me with regarding this uh, thing and Moshe relates in the very next verse that Hashem, while not accepting his plea exactly as he requested it, did allow him to see the promised land, Eretz Israel, from afar. And Hashem tells Moshe, and we read, Go Moshe, and you could see everything from the mountain because you're not going to cross this jordan river some rabbis see this as a partial acceptance of moshe's prayer he's asking to get into the land hashem says you're not going to get in but at least let me show it to you in an experience experiential way that you really feel and you could see every inch of the land but we're trying to understand here this idea of tefillah how does it work What's going on? Some rabbis suggest that Hashem in fact stopped Moshe Rabbeinu from saying a 516th prayer. If we calculate the days from when Moshe starts to pray until Moshe's passing, it seems we have 172 two days. And if we take the days, I mean separate from Shabbat, and if we take those days and three tefilot a day, we have 172 days and 3 times 172 would have been 516. So Moshe stops him before he gets to the 516. He keeps it at the 515. And some rabbis suggest that Hashem if would have had to accept this, this tefillah if Moshe said the 516th. And that might have messed things up. So Hashem actually is begging Moshe to stop. It sounds very strange. Based on this question, the question is, if Hashem answered Moshe's tefillah or not, how did he answer? We see different opinions. But I remember Rabbi Abitan explaining that Hashem did, Hashem does answer our tefillah even then when we don't get what we ask for. And he said we have to remember sometimes the answer is no. He would tell us that sometimes for our own good, for the world's good, or for what's best for everyone, the answer is no. Uh, some suggest, like we said, that giving Moshe Rabbeinu permission to go up to the mountain, see the land, was in a way giving him a part of his prayer. But it doesn't seem like he got what he asked for. And we always have to remember that uh, one of the one of the the rabbi the, the suggestions of the rabbis is: had Moshe gone into the land, then then uh, he would have built a Bet Hamikdash that would have never been able to be destroyed. And instead of Hashem taking his anger out to Shabbat Av on the on the stones and, and, and exiling us. The people would have been destroyed. There are a lot of different opinions. But we also have to remember that Hashem, when we pray to Hashem, we ask Hashem to give us kol mish'alot libech, libeinu. Kol, we we bless someone. Hashem should give you kol mish'alot libecha, all the desires of your heart, le tova, for the good. Because sometimes what we want is not good. And we're better off not having it. My father would always say le tova. He would always add that word le tova we have to say, imagine if Hashem answered all of our prayers. Maybe uh, some of our prayers are not so good. I once heard a story from Rabbi Ari Khan. He's a rabbi at Isha Torah. And he had a British uh, friend. And he said his friend told him a story. His parents were fighting one night. They were arguing with each other. And his mother tells his father, drop a dead. And all of a sudden he did and it was whoa and at the funeral she cried that he never listened to us before why did he start listening now so we have to see that sometimes his best Hashem doesn't listen to everything we ask for the idea of tefillah we see uh, presented uh, and how it works in the Gemara Gemara Rosh Hashanah Gemara Rosh Hashanah page 18a we see in the Gemara and I'm going to read it to you uh, in English translation the question of whether or not An individual sentence can be rescinded. I guess we're talking about, you know, when an edict is on a person, we have Rosh Hashanah, when we come to Hashem and uh, we're being judged. He says, can an edict be rescinded? And there's a dispute between the Tanaim. It's taught in a Brayta that Rabbi Meir would say, two people get sick, they go to their beds. The illness is the same. Or two people send to the tribunal for judgment. They go up to Shamaim. The potential sentence is the same But this one comes down from his bed While the other one does not come down from his bed And this one is saved from death While the other one is not saved So two people could have the same exact thing And one person is answered One person is not One person recovers One person doesn't And the, the, the rabbis asked the question For what reason did the one recover And the other one didn't recover Why is one saved from death The other one is not saved from death and the rabbis answer that the difference between them is that one prayed and was answered while one prayed was not answered. And for what reason was one's prayer answered and the other not answered? And the Gemara answers again, this one prayed a tefillah with his whole heart. Consequently, he was answered. While the other one did not pray a prayer with her whole heart and therefore she was not answered. Rabbi Eliezer, he argues that point, And he says, not so. He says, rather here, the person prayed before the heavenly sentence was issued, and so he was answered, whereas the other one prayed after his heavenly sentence was issued, and therefore he was not answered. So Rabbi Eliezer's opinion is that aside from having kavanah, aside from praying with proper further, the problem is if there's an edict that's already against the person, and that edict is signed, sealed, and delivered, he's done. He can't do much against, against the edict and in his opinion when hashem is telling moshe enough already moshe the edict is signed already there's nothing that can be done it's over and he says we could relate this to the situation of moshe the decree was related, was delayed was was made already and moshe could pray and pray nothing's going to happen but the problem i have with this is that hashem hashem tells him to stop and if Hashem tells him to stop, there must be a reason to tell him to stop rather than to tell him, sorry, your prayer won't be answered. I think this is why the tradition tells us that the 516th prayer would have put him over the top and Hashem would have had to do it. Additionally, the Zohar Kadosh seems to refute the suggestion of Rabbi Eliezer. The Zohar Kadosh tells us specifically, there's never a point when it's too late. A person could always repent and can always come back. In fact, the Gemara, right after Rabbi eliezer makes a statement, Rabbi Yitzchak, right away, the Gemara shows he disputes this. What does he say? He says, crying out to Hashem is effective for a person, both before his sentence has been issued and also after his sentence has been issued. As even after his sentence has been issued, it could still be rescinded if he repents so what the Gemara is saying sorry Rabbi Elias no there's no such thing we could always come back and we could deal with it and we can get we can get forgiven and we could get something changed I think this relates very well to King Chizkiyahu we know that the Prophet Yishayahu comes to Chizkiyahu and he tells Chizkiyahu who's lying in bed he's very sick he says that's it write your last will and testament because Hashem decreed you're dead it's over what do you mean he's dead? He didn't have children. He knew he didn't have children for a specific reason. It goes on and on. And Yeshayahu tells him, too late. You can't do anything. It's over. You're dead. And what does tells him? He tells Yeshayahu, I have a tradition from my ancestor, from my great-grandfather, from David HaMelech, that even if the knife is on your neck, it's never too late. And what happens? He throws him out. He turns to the wall. He prays to the wall. And Yeshayahu comes back and he's told Hashem has given him another 15 years. Therefore, we see even after the decree, with the knife on the neck, someone can come back. The Zohar Kadosh tells us that repentance breaks even an iron chain. It could break through any decree. It could change everything. Sifri suggests that Moshe Rabbeinu really didn't stop praying. That none of us should ever stop praying and we should keep pounding on heaven's door, even with that blade. Additionally, we have to be careful here. Do we think that Hashem decrees something and because we pray and say you're the king of the universe Hashem you're so great you're the uh, wonderful you're this you're that that Hashem gets so happy and he changes his mind do we believe that even though we deserve one thing we get something else we have to be very careful we have to remember as Rabbi Avitan would explain to us that prayer in Hebrew is a reflexive word reflexive basically meaning it affects me So my prayer, even though it's directed towards Hashem, is meant to change me. Thus the decree against me, the me who I was before the prayer, is not the decree against the me who I became after the prayer. Prayer is meant to change me. It's interesting because when we say to Hashem, when Moshe prays to Hashem, at the time of the golden calf, Moshe says to Hashem, and we say this on all the fast days, this is the, the, the Torah that we read, we just read it on Tisha B'Av, Hashem, Hashem. And the rabbi say, why Hashem? And then repeat Hashem. And we have to pause between the Hashem. When we say the Vayavod, we always have to say Hashem, pause, Hashem. Why? The Hashem before the decree is the same Hashem as after the decree. Hashem before the sin is the same Hashem as after the sin. But that's not us. We need to remember that the Gemara tells us that if anything bad happens to us, we have to consider the bad and we have to consider what is bad, what is Yisudim, what is punishment. So it goes so far to say that if a person reaches into his pocket, he pulls out a quarter instead of a nickel, we should consider this some form of Yisudim or punishment. We have to start examining, hey, Hashem's sending me a message. Hashem's talking to me. What's He trying to tell me? What did I do that I have to fix? Hashem is saying to us, hey, there's something wrong, you need to change it, you need to fix it. Once we make that change, we become a different person. So yes, Yisurim, or, or, or punishments, if we could translate it that way, really is Hashem telling us, He's talking to us, He's saying, hey, there's something wrong, something you need to fix. Hashem is a constant, Hashem is the same before the sin, Hashem is the same after the sin. Hashem doesn't change, it's up to us to be a different person after, it's a different person after, we have to be one person before that was the person judged, that was the person who had the edict against them, that's the person, but then we can change to a new person and ah, that new person doesn't have the edict against them looking into the subject further, there seems to be an aspect of tefillah, of prayer when said with the correct intent as the Gemara and the Zohar describe that creates a reality it creates a a reality in this world that could be described as beyond nature something miraculous and we have to hold on to these, these these stories that we hear because it gives us chizuk to say hey never stop praying never stop believing never stop knowing that anything is possible some years back I heard a story and I recalled parts of it but I was trying to, to remember the whole story so I googled the parts that I remembered you know you always turn to professor google he could help And I found a version of the story posted on the Yeshiva Bet El website by Rabbi Stuart Weiss. He writes, Relating to this week's parasha, Moshe's greatest wish was to enter Eretz Yisrael, to live, or at least to be buried there. He prayed 515 times until Hashem finally says, stop praying. What a strange thing it is for Hashem to tell us not to pray. What gives? So the rabbi tells the story. There's an elderly Jewish lady living in a nursing home. She passes away Her children who always visited her Always took care of her They're notified They immediately phone the Chavra the Kadisha And the Chavra comes Picks up the body Arranges for a proper burial And the woman is buried in the presence of her whole family They, 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 they give her a big funeral They bury her They say kaddish at, the, at the cemetery They then proceed to sit shiva in the house On the fifth day of Shiva, the phone answers, the phone rings, and her daughter, the, the woman's daughter, the woman who's sitting, she answers the phone. On the other end of the phone, it's her mother, whom she just buried. The daughter, immediately in shock after hearing her mother's voice, she faints. The phone rings again. It's her mother. She wants to know, why is no one coming to visit me? Why didn't anyone come see me the whole week? What's going on? Everyone all together gets up from the shiva And runs to the nursing home And what do they see? Their mother, their dead mother is alive (sighs) She's well What happened? It turns out there was a mix-up at the nursing home The woman's roommate passed away Not their mother The home mixed up the names They phoned the wrong family So the wrong person was buried Now imagine how terrible everyone felt About such a mistake But now the nursing home had this terrible, terrible job to inform the family, the children of the other lady that their mother died five days ago. And not only was she dead, she was already buried. So they called the son of the woman and he answered. And they said, you know, we're so sorry to tell you that uh, we apologize, but that his mother, he passed away. And the son interrupted. He said, I, I understand, just have her cremated. We're really not interested in doing anything else. And the lady in the nursing home says, Well, well wait, well, why? It's too late. She was always buried. She was buried in such and such cemetery. She had a proper Jewish burial. And he she tells her the story and said, Kaddishvah, everything was done exactly as it should have been. And the son, he's awestruck. And and he comes down and he tells the family this crazy story. He says, we long debated with our mother about what to do about her kvura, about her burial when she died. You see, our mother's observant. She's religious. She wanted a proper Jewish burial. But we told her, you know what, Ma, we're not religious, nonsense already, we don't believe in in an afterlife, we don't follow any halacha. it's better to cremate, cremation is much cheaper, it's definitely more ecologically correct. And our mother told us, I'm going to pray to Hashem every day that I receive a Jewish burial. And every day our mother prayed. And we told our mother, Ma, it's a waste of time because when you're gone, we're going to do what we want, we're in charge. But she kept on praying, and the son said, amazingly, it seems, that her prayer was answered. The rabbi comments, prayer has an awesome power, so great, so powerful, that Hashem knew that if Moshe prayed one more time, Tefilah 5, 16, even he, HaKadosh Baruch Hu, Tefillah, would have to give in. So he asked Moshe for the betterment of the world, for the betterment of everything. Moshe, please stop right here. So there's a lesson for all of us, never give up, never stop praying. The answer to our prayer might be just around the bend. The next bend of the knee might finally do the trick. So there, does prayer really work? You know, we have to try to understand how prayer works and how does this comment of the Gemara work, that a person who has the proper Kavarah, what does this mean? You know, if we've been paying attention to the Torah readings we've been reading over the past month or so, We can see a number of occasions, and from these occasions detailed in the Torah, we could really get a better understanding of Tefillah. Remember Korach, he challenges Moshe, he contests the selection of Aharon, he throws the commandment of Sitzit, the commandment of Mezuzah, into Moshe's face. He suggests that Moshe is acting on his own, he's simply making things up. You know, if Korach had his way, he could have destroyed Judaism. Korach is willing to risk his life and his desire for greater honor. And we see that eventually Korach is going to be punished, as we discussed, with this unique and horrible punishment. Yet we see Moshe Rabbeinu ask Hashem, Hashem, please don't accept their offering. Why would Moshe Rabbeinu even imagine that Hashem is going to accept anything from Korach? Next one, we see when Balak sends men to entice Bilam to curse Israel. Hashem tells him, "Don't go." But after the additional visits, the pleas, Hashem tells Moshe, tells Bilam, "You know what, Bilam? They're coming to pay you. If you're going to lose a financial loss, if you're going to suffer a financial loss, then you could go." And the question is, if Hashem told him not to go under any circumstances, now that he's going to lose money, wise is Hashem so? Con- concerned with Bil'am's finances When did Hashem become uh, Bil'am's uh, agent Next one We read all about the holidays At the end of Parshat Pinhas, Including the portion which discussed Yom Kippur Even today we could imagine the scene of Yom Kippur it says We we could imagine The Seder HaAvodah Which we, we repeat in our own Yom Kippur Think of your synagogue on on Kippur and multiply it by a thousand. All the people, all B'nai Israel, coming to the Beit pleading for forgiveness. They witnessed the Kohen Gadol, the holiest guy in the world, going into the Kodesh HaKodeshim to pray for the people. At that moment, he has Hashem's ear. So what does he ask for? His plea towards heaven is as follows. Please, Hashem, don't listen to the prayer of the traveler. That's what he's going to pray for at the moment When he has the ear of heaven All B'nai Israel are there praying He's in the Kodesh, what does he ask for? Hashem, don't listen to the prayer Of the travel Has to be a mistake Sounds too strange And finally, when we close the book of Bamidbar With Matot And Masai, we mention the cities of refuge The Arei Miklat Someone who kills Beshogeh Without intention, but with some negligence He has to run to one of these cities or else the Go'el Hadam, a relative of the deceased, can kill him. So this accidental killer must remain in the city with no possibility even to visit home. He can't go to see his friends, his family. He can't leave. He is in essence a prisoner of the city. When does he get out? It's only when the Kohen Gadol dies. Whether the high priest is young or old, the accidental murderer must wait. And after the Kohen Gadol dies, it's over. The Goyal hadam, the relatives, they can't touch him. He could finally return home to live out his days in peace. So what do we think the accidental murderer dreams about all day, every day, while living in this little town called the Arei Imagine us, you know, go live in some little town in Iowa. He must be envisioning the funeral of the Kohen Gadol. He prays for it daily. He prays every day because finally he's going to be able to get out of here, go back home, go back to his life. What's supposed to stop him? We're told that the mother of the Kohen Gadol annually sends cookies to all the residents of the Ademiklat, of the cities of refuge. Do we think that these cookies are going to make this guy pray less? Do we think the cookies are going to do something? What's going on here? When examined more deeply, all these stories help us understand the power of tefillah. Hashem created tefillah and it works, it's real. Hashem created this world with natural laws. There are physical laws of nature. See, in Brooklyn, when you listen to the uh, classes, you hear the, the ambulances and fire engines in the background here we hear helicopters flying over the house every uh five minutes so the physical laws of nature and their spiritual laws of nature Hashem is Neiman he's faithful to the system which he created we are told that Hashem would rather not interfere he would rather not do miracles and and let nature run its course Rabbi Abitahan will give us an example. He suggested that we take a piece of wood, a very dry piece of wood, and we light it. What's going to happen? It's going to burn. For dry wood not to burn would be a miracle. The rabbi would explain that in the same way there are natural laws of the spiritual world. Hashem created tefillah and it is the nature of tefillah if done correctly to work. In fact, we might suggest that it would take a miracle for tefillah not to work. Consider what that means. If a person prays and does so in the correct way, then it would be a miracle for Hashem not to listen to his tefilot. Look at Korach, coming against Moshe, even this self-serving person, if he brings him in how with the proper chavana, the proper thoughts and tefilah, it would be accepted. Moshe has to counteract this because Moshe is aware of this power and this law of nature. Hashem created prayer as a way for us to connect with Hashem. Consider the world until a few hundred years ago and consider the ancient world. Perhaps 90% of people lived agriculturally based lives. There were farmers and there were shepherds and your livelihood depended on the bounty of the earth. Whatever effort the farmer contributes, no matter the back-breaking labor, at the end of the day, he depends on rain. One can exert all the effort in the world and still there is nothing in a time of drought it's over so the world needs rain everyone prays for rain look at the Kohen Gadol on Yom Kippur he pleads with Hashem not to listen to the prayer of the traveler who is the traveler? before a few hundred years he traveled by foot or donkey or maybe camel and he was a nervous wreck there is danger in terrain, wildlife, thieves and above all the fear of rain so he pleads, please Hashem delay the rain for two weeks while I go and come back And imagine if every salesman did this. The Kohen Gadol begs Hashem, don't listen to those guys. Don't listen to that guy. Should we really be concerned with this selfish guy who's worried about his own travels without considering the needs of the land? Should we be concerned with someone who wants to deny farmers rain for his own comfort or to speed up his own trip? And the answer is yes, we're afraid that just as a match lights and burns wood, so it is that the nature of tefillah prayer is that prayers work and we need to fight it with an atomic weapon. The Kohen Gadol on Yom Kippur must offer a heartfelt tefillah. He begs, please Hashem, don't listen. How powerful is tefillah? But the prayer must be done correctly. What messes up the prayer? Why does the mother of the Kohen Gadol go around giving gifts, cookies, and kind words? The Gemara explains the accidental murderer is praying to please get rid of this Kohen Gadol. He has nothing against him personally, but there's only so much he can take of this little town in Idaho. He wants to go home, he doesn't want to die there. Should we worry about the prayer of a murderer? The answer is yes. His prayer, if done with Kavanagh, can work. And how do the cookies help? Are they magical? Don't tell me the cookie is going to stop him from praying. He wants out. But the answer is that his tefillah becomes a little bit imperfect. He sees this old lady. She's giving out the cookies. He feels bad. He prays a little bit less. It's not 100% there. It's not 100% sincere. And thus his tefillah loses a big part of its power. In the same vein, Bil'am was very powerful, and his words had power, but once they're tainted with money, the prayer loses its power and its sincerity. This is why Hashem tells him, if it's for the money, Bil'am, go! If it's for the money, they have nothing to fear from you. Tefillah, prayer, works. But only if we put everything into it. Tefillah works if we pray with all our heart. This is Kavanah. At this point, we start seeing there's a power of prayer. You can go countless more examples. But how do we make our prayer so powerful? Obviously, we have to have Kavanah, but look at Rabbi Nobachia. Rabbi Bahya, he comments on Parashat Noach. Uh, <coughs> I'm sorry, on Parashat Korach, which we just mentioned, Korach. He tells us that when Korach and his Eda come against Moshe. What does Moshe do? He does something different. He and Aaron, they fall on their faces. The background. So my brother Victor answers in his Perasha right up on uh, one of the years for uh, Korach. And he writes on the question, why did they fall on their faces? And he quotes the Tanhumah, Because of the dispute, as this was their fourth despicable act. What are the four? They sinned with the golden calf. Moshe implored B'nai Yisrael with the complainers. Uh, Moshe implored Hashem with regard to B'nai Israel with the, with the complainers. And Moshe prayed with the spies. Moshe said to Hashem, if Egypt should hear. At the Korach dispute, however, Moshe's hands were weakened. Evidently, since was this the fourth despicable act of B'nei Moshe was restricted from praying on their behalf. He had to resort to falling on his faces, on his face, on their faces, him and Aaron, to effectuate a tikkun. Here we're taught that the falling on the face was as a result of Moshe's hands being weakened and using the option of prayer. We have to ask, with regard to the nature of falling on one's face in place of prayer, as well as why it becomes necessary only after the three other failings. So Victor continues, Scripture often makes a distinction between three mishaps and a fourth. He quotes the Sivtei Chachamim. They reference a verse from Iyov. Hashem will work with a man two or three times. Others cite a verse from Amos, for three transgressions of Israel, I will turn away. But for the fourth, I will not release him. Based on these and other references in the Tanakh, Raveno HaAri teaches that a wicked person is given three lifetimes to advance spiritually, but not a fourth. Sefer Mi'ir La'aretz on Pashat Korach notes that a person is more easily forgiven for committing a transgression three times as a prayer is still effective in redeeming the sparks he caused to get trapped. By his mishaps. Continues, but not so if he commits a fourth mishap, which apparently can even cause an aspect of his solely, holy soul to descend into the grasp of evil spiritual husks. A redemption of a fourth mishap will require an even more extreme measure to be effective. Similar to what Moshe had to do to rescue the souls and sparks that were shattered by Korach and his assembly. Let's jump to Rabbeinu Bachya where he explains on this Nefila tabai that Moshe and Aaron did this to pray. This, he says, is the source for falling on one's face during tahanun in the tefilah which has three deeper meanings. He says fear of the divine presence two, to show one's pain and submissiveness and three, to show that one's senses are bound and one's one's feelings are annulled. Let's review the three. The first fear of the divine presence is so that one will be suffused with contrition and modesty for covering one's face is a mannerism of humility and shame. One who prays should have the intention that the divine presence is in front of him Therefore, the rabbis added the practice of covering one's face to the facets of prayer with the goal of obtaining fear of Hashem. This is the reason they added. He brings a second. The second meaning is that by falling on one's face, one indicates his pain and submissiveness, which are the main points of repentance. And as a result, his prayer is accepted and Hashem will be concerned about his pain and to his request. The third meaning is binding the senses and annulling feeling. By falling on one's face, he covers his eyes and closes his mouth, thereby indicating that he sees neither personal harm nor benefit for himself. He's completely oblivious to his affairs. He realizes he cannot achieve his desire unless Hashem agrees to it. His feelings are annulled and he is bound from being able to achieve his desire. His eyes and his mouth are closed, unable to see and talk, with the exception of doing the will of Hashem. So when a person falls on his face, he shows he's powerless. He can't do anything. He's completely subservient. I'm at your mercy, your majesty. You have to act like a person with no power. Only Hashem has the power. It's interesting that this idea of being bound when we pray is an idea that the Goyim picked up from us we initially prayed with our hands together as our hands are bound together Hashem, only you can do the goyim picked this up and they put it into their tefillot as the way of prayer and probably they have no idea why and when they did it we stopped person puts their hands together he shows Hashem I'm powerless I can't do anything everything depends on you Hashem I could try Hashem but next to you my hands are bound it says this custom we stopped it when the goyim started doing it but we kept the vestige what's the vestige we stand with our feet together bound powerless subservient before hashem and it's interesting that typically we do this in our morning prayers and again in the afternoon after we complete the amida we say anna then we sit and say le david we have Le David, and that's what we sit. Le David, Elecha Hashem, Nafshi Esah. Says, O oh Lord, I set my hope on you. Elo Kai Bechava In Hashem, in you, I trust. Al Evoshah, Al Yalzu Oyvayli. May I not be disappointed. May my enemies not exult over me. Falling on the face of so, Sephardim, we really don't fall on our face, we just sit. Ashkenazim, they have the habit, they put their hand, the custom to put their hand in their arm. I was looking at the various customs I saw interesting in Shulchan Aruch Harav. He says, saying Le David Hashem nafshisa. He says it's based on Kabbalah. One is to recite this psalm of Le David during Tahanun. This psalm is the main prayer of Tahanun and when it's authored, he says, for this purpose. Nevertheless, he says, since one who recites this psalm during Tahanun without concentration causes that he leave the world before his time, therefore, he says, in these provinces they refrain from saying it, he says, and rather they say the prayer of Rachum vechanun. I find it very interesting. And maybe this is the reason why, specifically Syrians, in Minha, we don't say, generally we don't say, Le David. Maybe it's Minha, we're stopping in the middle of our workday, we're coming together to say Minha, we're rushing back to go back to the office. Maybe it's hard to have Kavanah, and the rabbis are worried if we're going to sit down and say Le David without Kavanah, then we put ourselves in danger. But from the above, it's understood that one must have extra concentration on reciting this psalm. And he continues in Shulchan Aruch Harab and he says that Sephardic Jewry, our custom is to recite the psalm during tach- Tachanun, sitting down. Although he says we don't place our hand on our arm due to the above danger. Nevertheless, even Sephardim have to have extra, extra con- con- concentration, extra kavanah during the prayer of psalms, of this psalm. So my brother Victor explains the falling on the face by Moshe at the rebellion of Korach serves as a prototype to redeem a fourth type of spark or a soul aspect that cannot be released via tefillah. This aspect has descended to such a low spiritual level that tefillah, that prayer alone is ineffective. Hence the words of the Midrash regarding Moshe. Since it was their fourth despicable act, the spark or soul aspect descended into a place called death. These may only be rescued through the order of nefilat apayim, falling on the face. At that point of the prayer, one is positioned in the highest of the four worlds, having basically already rectified the three types of sparks. The fourth type of spark can only ascend by integrating them within our souls as they are of the nature of having been intertwined thoroughly in the evil husks. Rabbi Nohari writes that one must thrust his soul downward to the place of death as falling from the roof to the ground in the secret of Nefilat tapayim, and then reciting elecha Hashem This is the secret of what is written in the Gemara that the sadikim in death descend to Gainam grabbing onto the sinner to release them from there. Rabbeinu HaAdi sees the meditations of Nefilat to be of unparalleled value in rescuing that which cannot be redeemed in any other manner. So it seems the perfect prayer, but returning to what we saw in Shulchan Aruch HaRav, that they were afraid to say it. Let's examine more. Again, we go to Victor, and he wrote... It's clear that not all persons have the wherewithal to redeem these sparks from this lowly state, as they represent the fourth stage. This is, has, has already been taught by Rabbi el Azar. Not all are answered falling on their faces. Furthermore, Rabbeinu Ari cautions that one must be sufficiently prepared for this, servants, for this service. says Nefilat te'apayim represents a righteous act without limit it's best accomplished by one with righteous deeds who could raise sparks from within these husks within these klipot so at a minimum one must be attentive especially during that tefilah for if not a person could be harmed during the descent there Sefer Meirat La'aretz reiterates that someone who is not properly prepared to descend can have his soul captured and remain there without the ability to ascend. Scary. This he writes is what occurred to Yohanan who served as Kohen Gadol for 80 years and in his final time he turned to the Sidukim. Sometimes when descending into the place of the evil husks during the apayim due to certain sins, a person's soul could be captured, substituted with an alternative, impure version. Therefore, since this represents a danger, we, at least if I deem, refrain from putting our face to the ground, and even Ashkenazim merely lay the face on the left arm while being careful not to place one's face in his hand. We can see that the Ishai echoes the words of Rabbi Nohari, acknowledging the reward of one who could accomplish the task of Nefilat while reading Mizmur Le David. But he then validates the custom of Baghdad to refrain from even placing one's face on the left arm. He says this represents a danger for one not sufficiently prepared says Rabenu <coughs> the Benishai he received a testimony from Rabbi Eliyahu Mani that even the Mikubalim and the Yeshivat Bet El did not recite the Mizmor while placing their face on their left arm however something interesting Victor writes that he does recall that our Rabbi Chacham Yaakov Kassim did indeed place his face in his left arm when reciting Lidavid Chacham Edmund Nahum told him that he recalls that some of the sages of Aleppo did this as well but this, though, has not been demanded on others in our community. We follow the opinion, basically, of the Ben Maybe it's just only the greatest of the community who's able to go down and descend. It's interesting that other people bring that the greatest of the Talmudin did not do it. It was an embarrassing thing. But maybe it's those Rabbis who really can descend and they can bring up those souls that have fallen. So, something from the Kafa Chaim, he writes on the important, and really from the Kafa Chaim, can understand the importance of having Kavanah, especially, like we said, with this prayer, Le David. He writes something interesting. He writes that one who does not intend to lower his soul to the forces of evil in order to purify them. But Rabbi solely intends to surrender his soul for the sake of Torah observance and the fulfillment of mitzvot. He doesn't endanger himself. So this Kavara is important. We could think, listen, Hashem, I'm not at that point to go down and get those sparks. But I'll do my best. You do the rest. So how do I pray? We have to really know what we're saying. A person should really pray with a, a sidur. If he doesn't really understand the words, he should pray with a, a linear sidur with a translation, so he could look quickly and get a better understanding of the of the tefillah. And what's going to elevate our prayers? We preface them. We say, "Hashem, I come to you. Everything, Hashem, is in your hands. Without you, I have nothing." You know, we were talking about last week. You know maybe there's an edict against me but if I work for Hashem I'm completely dependent on Hashem I'm doing the job we say please Hashem give me wisdom the more we rely on Hashem the more we subscribe to Hashem the more powerful our tefillot it's like a child who's helpless who needs everything Hashem provides the mother gives the food with caring builds into parents an instinct to care to protect and provide for Hashem's child that baby the key word I think in Le David is we look at the Tefillah, look, we see Bitachon. We say Baruch ha-gever, If you trust in Hashem, then Hashem will be your security. You know, we learned Chovot Halevavot with the rabbi, I said many times that probably his favorite book, his favorite chapter was Sha'ar Habitachon. And he would tell us that a person who puts their trust into another source, an idea, money saying, they're going to take care of us. Hashem is going to say, let them take care of you. Hashem would tell us that we have to have bitachon. We have to recognize that it's really Hashem who's taking care of us, who's giving us everything, who's doing everything for us. And He would also tell us that it's important for us to pray for everything. We have a question of Torah. We have to pray. Hashem, even you have to help me to pray. We start every time we say the Amidah. Hashem, Hashem, please open up my lips. Tefillah is real. Tefillah is powerful, but it has to be proper. One of the keys is to nullify oneself. Everything is Hashem. We have to have faith and trust in Hashem. We have to remember in the milvadoh. There's nothing but Hashem. And if we do that, it seems that our prayer can't be rejected. We say the Hashem iftacho. Hashem ozla the makor Hashem ivarech tamor bishalom bishalom vetah Hashem iftacho. May all our prayers be answered. Litova. We should, have, under these prayers, we should have the kavanah. we should realize what we're doing, we should recognize that everything is in Hashem's power, that there's nothing that can't be done, there's nothing that's not possible. We have to put away our doubts, we have to put away our trust. We shouldn't trust, it says don't trust in people, don't trust. Trust only in Hashem you know it's interesting we say this tefillah like when we have medicine the Rambam gives us and we have this rufua cards that my friend Rabbi Chaim Dr. Chaim Abitan puts out and we say that this should be a for me Hashem but we recognize that whatever the doctor does whatever the the therapist does whatever anyone does those things should be a refuah whatever the pill does they should be a only through you Hashem because only through Hashem are we to have our prayers answered Bezrat Hashem, we should pray well we should pray nicely. We should have kavanah. We should not stop praying. We should remember even if the knife is on the neck. There's never a loss of hope. We should remember what the Zohar teaches us. You could break through any edict, any metal, any any chain. Anything can be broken through when a person has the proper and complete kavanah. And we should do that and be B'Zochet to see Mashiach. Amen. Thank you everybody for joining us. It's interesting. It's the same amount of words typically of my class. but because I guess I spoke directly into the recording. I spoke a little fast, so you may want to slow things down if you have that option. Everyone, thank you for listening. Shabbat shalom. Bizrat Hashem. We'll see you again next week. Thank you. Any questions, you could send me a uh, an email or, uh, or a WhatsApp text, and we will get back to you. Thanks, everybody. Have a good week. Have a good Shabbat. Good week.